Section 1 of Feminism in Greek Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Feminism in Greek Literature by Frederick Adam Wright. Chapter 1 The Early Epic. Any discussion of Greek literature must begin with Homer, although, as regards women and the social position, the epic in its first form stands somewhat aloof from the general current of ancient thought. The Homeric poems are in a very real sense the Greek Bible, for they represent a standard of morality which in many respects is far higher than that which prevailed at Athens in the great era of Greek history, and they picture a state of society very different from the complex civilization of the city-state. It must be remembered that the Homeric poems were not written to suit the taste of the old Mediterranean people, who, if we may trust the evidence of archaeology and certain signs in their language, had but a low code of sexual morality, and were inclined to regard women as mere instruments of pleasure. The epic, in its original shape, was composed for Achaean chiefs who came down into Greece from Central Europe, and in sexual matters were rather of the Scandinavian type. But the Achaeans were only a small ruling class, and were soon assimilated by the conquered peoples, whose language they adopted. A second tide of invasion by the northern tribes called Dorian led to somewhat more permanent results, but the original Mediterranean race was always far superior in numbers, and unless intermarriage was prohibited by law, it was only a matter of time for the primary racial type to reappear. Hence the interest of Greek history, which is one long process of interblending and change, the renaissance of the conquered and the gradual disappearance of the conquerors. Hence also the difference of view in all feminist matters between Homer and much of the later Greek literature. The Odyssey especially, which, though perhaps later in composition than the original Iliad, has been less worked over and received fewer editions, is based on an entirely different idea of woman's position from that which was held after the 7th century BC. Samuel Butler's theory that the Odyssey was composed by a woman, perhaps Nausicaa herself, is hardly capable of exact proof. But at any rate, women in the Odyssey are never degraded as they are in many of the later passages of the Iliad, and the one lewd passage, the first lay of Demodocus in Book Eight, the loves of Ares and Aphrodite, is a plain interpolation and a clumsy one at that. Women indeed pull the strings in the Odyssey. The goddess Athena, the nymphs Calypso and Circe, and the mortals Penelope and Nausicaa are the principal actors in the drama. With both these latter there are traces of the old German custom of Mutterrecht. The kingship of the tribe seems to go on the woman's side. The claimants to Odysseus's chieftainship seek it through his wife. Nausicaa is the only daughter, and her marriage is of importance to all the tribe. So Calypso and Circe are represented as island queens, living in independent sovereignty and normally unconcerned with male companionship. Odysseus is to both very much in the position of a prince consort, and, being an active man, suffers severely from lack of occupation and lack of power. Athena is the guiding spirit of the whole action, and takes a motherly interest in the hero, but otherwise she is pure intelligence, superior to man, and quite free from any desire for man's society. The women of the Odyssey follow her lead, and have little trace of that over-sexuality which is ascribed by later writers to all women as a natural trait. It cannot be said that the wise Penelope shows any womanish weakness in her constant love. 
she bears her husband's absence with resignation and maintains his authority intact during a period of twenty years on his return she is by no means over anxious to recognize him when the nurse tells her of the slaughter of the suitors by odysseus she calls her a fool and threatens her with punishment for disturbing a busy woman with idle tales telemachus chides her for a wilful stubbornness odysseus dresses himself in royal raiment but fails to make any impression and finally in disgust calls to the nurse to make him up a bed so that he may go off and sleep by himself for says he this woman has a heart of iron in her breast when at last she is convinced she explains that her hesitation has been due to a well-founded distrust of men and their wiles and she is content to let her husband go off the very next morning to visit the old laertes again nausicaa has no traces of the timid shyness which is counted a virtue among harem women she faces the half-naked odysseus boldly as he comes from the bush where he has been hiding like a lion of the hills rained upon and buffeted by the wind and his eyes are ablaze and in all her dealings with him she is a charming mixture of generosity and caution moreover the morality of the odyssey in all sexual matters is very high and if it is not offensive to say so it is women's morality there is very little appeal to the sensual man and although calypso and circe were by later writers taken as types of the voluptuous female their fascination in the odyssey is left entirely to the imagination and they are pictured as industrious housewives the description is the same for both singing in a sweet voice within doors as she walked to and fro before the loom little or nothing is said of any physical attraction they may have possessed so with the punishment meted out at the end of the story to the maidservants who had accepted the embraces of the suitors first they carry out the corpses of their dead lovers then they wash and cleanse the bloody floor and finally they are hanged twelve of them together like thrushes or doves caught in a snare and they struggled with their feet for a little while but not for long it is one of the few ruthless passages in the poem there is no tendency here to err on the side of indulgence to the sins of the flesh and for such sins harsher measure is dealt out to the woman than to the man but as significant as anything of the gulf between the odyssey and later greek literature is the treatment of the two famous sisters helen and clytemnestra helen to the later greeks the type of the wanton appears in the odyssey as the faithful wife respected and self-respecting of king menelaus she lives in his palace busy with domestic duties and when she thinks of the past it is to rejoice over her return home and escape from troy where she says i used to mourn over the cruel fate which aphrodite sent upon me when she led me from my beloved country leaving behind me my daughter my home and my husband dear who lacked nothing of perfection in mind or in body it is a very different picture from that of paris's mistress as we have her in later stories flying with a foreign youth from her lawful lord and betraying her too fond master so clytemnestra after the lyric poets of the seventh and sixth centuries had worked up her story is that most dreadful figure to king man the regicide the woman who dares by craft and guile to kill the man set over her as ruler in all the later stories it is clytemnestra who arranges the details of agamemnon's death the bath the enveloping robe and the axe it is she who deals the fatal blow while her lover 
Aegisthus, is a cowardly non-entity, entirely under the dominion of the woman. But in the Odyssey the story is very different. It is told twice, by Agamemnon to Odysseus in Hades, and by Nestor to Telemachus at Pylos, and this last version is significant enough to be given word for word. We Greeks, says Nestor, were lingering over there at Troy, and many a task did we fulfil. But he, Aegisthus, at his ease in the quiet valleys of Argos where the horses feed, tried to beguile the wife of Agamemnon with soft words. At first, of course, fair Clytemnestra refused to do the shameful thing, for she was a woman of honest heart. Moreover, there was with her a minstrel, whom Agamemnon, when he went to Troy, had bidden to protect his wife. But soon the fate of heaven encompassed the minstrel, and brought him to his death, for Aegisthus took him to a desert island and left him there, a prey for the birds to tear asunder. As for the queen, he willing and she willing, he led her to his house, and many a sacrifice did he offer to the gods when he had done that great deed, which never in his heart had he expected to accomplish. Such is the passage, and the last two sentences are a literal translation of the lines which appear thus in Pope's version. Then virtue was no more. Her guard away, she fell to lust a voluntary prey. Even to the temple stalked the adulterous spouse with impious thanks and mockery of vows. For these are the dangers of poetical translation. But more important than any single character or episode is the general impression given by the whole poem, and it may fairly be said that the entire framework of the Odyssey presupposes a condition of society in which women are regarded as not in the least, qua women, inferior to men. In the Iliad, things are different, and the poem, as we have it now, gives us three distinct pictures of women's position in life. The original epic, The Wrath of Achilles, has hardly any place for women at all. It is true that Achilles' anger has for its cause the woman Briseis, but Achilles is angry not at the loss of a woman whom he loves, but at the loss of a piece of property, which he knows by experience to be of considerable value and service. Briseis is a slave, a thing, not a person. In the whole Iliad, she is only mentioned ten times, and nine times out of those ten, she is merely catalogued as an article of value, with the slave-dealer's epithet, fair-cheeked, attached. But this is hardly surprising. All the earlier portions of the Iliad are primarily lays of battle. They are antisocial, and woman has no part or lot in them. The Iliad, however, is built up of many different strata, and one stratum, by no means the least important, was contributed by a poet who understood and sympathised with women. In thought and language, he has many affinities with the author of the Odyssey, and he is probably responsible for the one passage in the poem where Briseis appears as a human being and makes lament over the dead body of Patroclus, a speech which served Ovid as the groundwork wherefrom, with many embellishments, he expands the letter in the heroines. From the same hand as Bryce's speech comes the supreme scene of the parting between Hector and Andromache, and all the closing passages of the Iliad, the ransoming of Hector and the lamentation of the women, his wife, his mother, and Helen over the corpse. No one can read the Iliad without feeling that the moral spirit of all these passages is of a very different and of a very much higher quality than the brutality of the earliest lays and the loose cynicism 
of the last additions to the poem, which we shall have next to consider. End of section 1